slide for our uh, PowerPoints for the lesson this morning. Um, you can be turning your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Um, I'm going to read uh, verses 14 through 17. <clears throat> 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. And then I'll um, just kind of give an introduction for what we're studying this morning. Uh, so Paul writing to Timothy said, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Uh, so you can almost think of this as uh, an outline of different kinds of lessons. So not every lesson is going to be based on uh, application of action um, or even comprehension of maybe uh, scriptures and history in the Old Testament or things in the life of Jesus or things in the epistles. Um, sometimes we just need teaching on what's right, what's wrong, how to understand um, doctrinal matters. And we need those things to be uh, given in a way that um, that second word after teaching or doctrine is uh, reproof or correction. Um, the idea of being convicted or persuaded of what's right. Um, now this local church, for you who are visiting, and I guess for us as well, um, God has made this church into a very, very diverse group of people. Uh, we come from a pretty dramatic uh, pretty dramatic, diverse diversity of backgrounds, um, places of understanding, um, places of biblical understanding. So this may be for many of us something that we may have not looked at in detail. Um, some of you may have already looked at this in the past in detail, um, but this oftentimes is actually not a subject that uh, generally I find religious organizations or churches around us Generally, this is not something that's really studied out or looked at very carefully. Uh, and I think with just the diversity of this group, it would be good to really start with a foundation leading into the points, which actually are very simple. Uh, now, this slide, um, some of you have seen this before. Um, I did a series last year on understanding the nature of the church. So these next slides will just be some general review things. Um, something that's always important is to remember that church literally in the Greek was the word ekklesia. And the ekklesia was simply an assembly, a gathering of people. So the church is not a group of different groups. The church is people who are connected to Christ individually. And in scripture, there's a distinction between the universal church, which would be all people who are connected to Jesus, and the local church, which is people who because of their common identity in Christ choose to involve themselves in a common work and fellowship together. And I guess a way to picture this, you see that distinction in Acts chapter 2 when the church begins, just these arbitrary names. You've got Greg, Stan, and Mary, and each of them are uniquely and individually connected to Jesus and their salvation. But the local church is when these people then choose to join themselves together to embrace a common sense of identity and a common work, a common fellowship. And you see that again when the church began in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 46. Now, just to make it really clear, what we're talking about in this lesson is not how we're called individually to use our finances. That's not what we're studying and considering this morning. What we're looking at is how is there a pattern, is there instruction 
specifically for how a local church is distinctively meant and called to use the funds collected, and is there any direction we have for that? So first thing is, uh, you can actually turn to Nehemiah 10, the last scripture on this list. Um, these other scriptures are generally going to be referenced in your margins in Nehemiah. Uh, but the first point is really just how the Old Testament really gives a, a foundation of principle that, uh, that relates to the, the subject. In Exodus, when the tabernacle was being built, it was free will offerings taken from the congregation that were then used to build it. And there were a couple instructions about contributions taken for the service of the tent of meeting, which was what the temple eventually, as a greater, more permanent structure, became. In Numbers 18, you have the tithe, which was a 10% of goods that, again, you, you notice the quotations, it was in return for their, that is the priesthood, their service which they performed, the service of the tent of meeting. First Chronicles 29, the temple structure was built with materials willingly offered, like the tabernacle. And in Ezra chapter 1, when they were rebuilding the temple, it was also a free will offering. And Nehemiah chapter 10, if you have your Bibles there, Nehemiah and the people of his day, when they've come back, they've rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem now, they've re-inhabited the city of Jerusalem, they've restored worship, and they're signing this document. And in verse 32 through the end of the chapter, they're actually outlining in detail the restoration of the practices of all of these principles and things here. Uh, and if you look at your margins, if you read this, you'll notice these scriptures referenced. But I just want to point a couple brief things to your attention. Look at the end of verse 32. It says, This shekel that was being collected be for the service of the house of God specifically. At the end of verse 33, it, was be, it would be for all the work of the house of God. At the end of verse 34, he talks about how this would be done as it was written in the law. In verse 35, everything given to the house of the Lord annual, annually. And if you go down to the very last verse, right, just right above chapter 11, it says that all of this would be done in a way that would not cause the neglect of the house of God. And in the Old Testament, sometimes they would misuse these funds. There would, there would be times that the kings would use this as their own purse. So sometimes they would be attacked by a nation and the king would take money out of the temple treasury to pay off a nation to protect them. And it would always lead to long-term things that would go dramatically and catastrophically wrong with the nation as a result. So there, there's a pattern in the Old Testament of a collection used for a purpose, collected in a way very specifically outlined and used in a way specifically outlined as well. So when we move closer, go to John chapter 14. Just a couple more principles, a uh, couple more principles that I'd like to establish leading into um, more specific scriptures is just the way that Jesus viewed God's word and if we know Jesus the way that he then strove to connect us to also view God's word just like he did. And just some, as you can see on the board, just some principles that I think again lead us safely into the subject at hand to make careful and reverent applications that stay within the confines of what God has revealed himself. So John 14, um, after uh, Judas, not Iscariot, asked you know, this question, where are you going that we can't follow you? And Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. So just some things that take our approach to God's authority into a place where it's not just um, obedience just for the sake of ritualistic obedience. Abiding in God's word is an expression of our love for him. 
abiding in God's word is what connects us to him and helps safely guard us into a position where we're not making an idol out of God, but allowing God to be exactly who he's defined himself to be and interacting with him by covenant in a way that maintains the reality of his living character apart from anything I may choose to think to invent in my own mind. So Jesus was not encouraging his disciples to act on presumption as an expression of their love for God. Further, John 14, the end of the chapter, the last couple of verses, Jesus said, I will not speak more, much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. Your translation may say in verse 31, I do as he has told me, or something similar to that. I really like the New American Standard's emphasis on I do exactly as the Father has commanded me. And just how I've summarized this, doing exactly what God commanded not only demonstrated Jesus' love for the Father, which is a part of what he's referencing here, but Jesus abiding in his Father's instruction the purpose of God for Jesus' life was fully and perfectly accomplished as a result. And because Jesus had such a humble adherence to the will of his Father, the world was never the same. And the manifestation of God's glory that came from Jesus' adherence in this way is the reason why we all can sit here today and partake of the Lord's Supper. So again, Jesus modeled this attitude of not operating on presumption, but wanting to stay within the safety and the liberty of what has God actually revealed is his will to accomplish his purpose. And further, just a couple more things in John 15. um, John really 13 through 17, these same things are emphasized through these different angles by Jesus. But as he's talking about how we're the the branches and he is the vine, he says in verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he, uh, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. What would it look like just to act on the principle of that verse alone? You know, like, what kind of discussions should we have with each other when we're thinking about doing a work in God's name or... Let's say if it was a church that was wanting to grow and, and do big things, what would that discussion look like? You know, people might throw out ideas like we could have a bake sale or we could do this fundraiser or maybe we could use our property and put a billboard up and get maybe some income doing that and we could really expand what we have coming into the treasury doing these things. What should be the basis of those discussions? What if we really, in verse 5, had the attitude that no matter what the world may do and no matter what ideas we may have, what if we started from the foundation that unless our ideas come from the foundation of the expression of God's word, nothing is actually being accomplished at all. And that's the thing is a lot of churches might do big things in the community, but that's not our model, right? So again, what if we really had the attitude No matter how things may look to us, unless our actions come from God's word at the foundation, nothing is being accomplished. Uh, Look further at verses 9 through 11, and this really is where the point on the board comes in. He says, Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. 
just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. And one of the amazing things about Christ as our King, he calls us to obedience and submission on the basis of great promises. He calls us to obedience and submission on the basis of great promises. So again, our approach to God's authority is not just some strict set of rules and just kind of wanting to do things for the sake of doing them correctly without anything else involved. And again, we want to do things correctly for the sake of our knowledge of God, but at the same time, we understand that Jesus revealed that life, love, joy, fellowship, spiritual fellowship with the Father, all of these things are reserved and exclusively marked and found in the expression of God's will and his word. And how can we presume being flesh? And you think about the Lord's Supper, we have all lived in the lost darkness of sinful living. So how can we then think to presume that once we come to somewhat of a knowledge of the truth, now we can begin inserting our own ideas and they be accepted by God? So we want, we want to approach God on the basis of the foundation that Jesus sets here with this attitude. So on this note, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And really the, last of, the rest of the lesson is just very straightforward with these points. Um, because again, when, when we're willing to at least establish ourselves on the foundation that we, we see in Jesus, it simplifies the discussion. And it makes it so that we can work through even difficult discussions and applications at least with productive direction. Right? So 1 Corinthians uh, 16, uh, verses 1 and 2. Also, um, I meant to say this in the introduction, but a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago, um, I did a lesson on 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 16, and it talks about the support of widows in that context, and I chose to kind of hold off on some of the things about the collection there because I thought that might need a more specific sermon. So that this is meant to kind of connect to that, you know, the things that are said about the collection in 1 Timothy 5, just kind of making more broad and specific sense of some of the things that were said uh, in, that, in that context. So 1 Corinthians 16, I'm going to read verses 1 and 2, or 1 through 4, I'm sorry. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem, and if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. So, very simple. What I've done on the board is just split, really, what's happening in these two, or these four verses, these two sections, to help with clarity. We're just going to break it down piece by piece. One of the things that we see consistently through the New Testament, every single time a common collection is ever referenced, and its collection or use is always specifically for the saints, every time. And we'll see distinctions between what an individual may choose to do with their own personal funds compared to what the local collection is called to be used for specifically. Always it is for the saints. The next thing is, it's to be done on the first day of the week. So you see that in verse 2. So, if we abide in what this instructs us with, this excludes then having an online giving button on a website. It excludes every assembly, asking for money every assembly. 
um, there was uh, an assembly not um, with um, well, it was a, it was a congregation that um, the Bates and I had been invited to, and it was on a Thursday, I think. And the first thing they did was they asked people for money. First thing they did, and that is entirely inconsistent with the practice and the instruction that we see in 1 Corinthians 16. Um, And it's in verse 2 again, something to be done on an individual basis with how the person is individually prospering. So, And you just think what it says, as he may prosper, would this imply then if in the week you have not prospered at all that you may not have an obligation then to give? Yeah. Again, it's not a tithe. Do you see that second point? It's not a 10% demand no matter what. It's each person makes this determination of their own will based on how they've prospered. And nobody else then is in charge of making that determination for you. But again, something that you do from your own will toward this local collection. And as something we emphasize consistently, this was an instruction to the church at Corinth specifically and the Christians who are a part of this church. So sometimes we emphasize if you're visiting, as Glenn did in the announcements, we're not asking for any money from anyone visiting or anything like that. This is a self-sustaining, self-supporting instruction. Uh, So I think that those help at least form a good basis. Now, three and four, this collection was being used with purpose. So he wasn't giving this instruction without giving some kind of follow-up with, well, this is to be used for something. So in verse three and four, He relates this to the need in Jerusalem. If you actually turn back to Acts chapter 11, uh, this might be helpful to give some context. Because in the epistles, Paul would talk frequently about his going to Jerusalem to help the needy saints there. And in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, he follows up in uh, discussing this more with with the Corinthians. But we'll read Acts 11, 27 through 30. And again, you'll see the consistency with at least the principle of things being done collectively with finances specifically for other Christians. So Acts 11:27. Now at this time some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, setting it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. All right. So with this and chapter 16, um, I want to look at how, how is this done. Now, in chapter 11 of Acts, it says they put this in charge of Paul and Barnabas. But in 2 Corinthians 8 and in chapter 16, it's noted that the church has also appointed people who would carry their collection autonomously where the need was. So the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul wasn't saying, just trust me. Just trust me, give me your money, and I'll make sure it gets there, right? So it's not that they met the need through Paul to the needy saints in Jerusalem, but it also wasn't through another organization. So it's not that the Corinthians thought, well, you know, surely there's some Jewish organizations in Jerusalem that redistribute money in a trustworthy way, so let's just give our money to that institution and they'll, you know, they'll give it out the way that it's needed. Uh, I think something interesting about this, although they were all traveling together, do you think it may have been more difficult for them to distribute this and give this on their own? But 
if there was any added difficulty, can you see any importance in what's preserved in autonomy of the church being maintained and how this would get where it was meant to go? So it wasn't through another institution, but it also wasn't through another church. So a lot of times what will happen in the world today is there will be like a head church that all these other churches will then funnel all of their money to and then the members of this bigger congregation will then use the money donated to them to then go out and meet a need or perform some work. And that also is not what we read here. And so that exists clearly outside of the realm of this instruction. Instead of doing what 1 Corinthians 16, 1-4 instructs to preserve that sense of quiet autonomy, instead it becomes something else entirely. So how did they meet the need? It was the Corinthians appointing people directly to go to the need in Jerusalem and distribute it. I think a modern example of this, so in Texas, I think it was two years ago, there was a hurricane in Texas that just demolished massive sections of the region. And there were churches that had members who their homes were destroyed completely. Uh, In some churches, it was nearly all the members had lost their homes. And uh, I remember that there was a Facebook page created specifically for elders of these churches or men of these churches to make known what the needs were and then even potentially to set up PayPal accounts that people could contribute directly to the need and then have a report back of who that ended up going to in the end, right? So would that fit this model? And I would say yes, it's people either individually or collectively giving directly to the need of the saints in a different region, which is what they were doing here. Um, So with that, um, I just want to look at the main uses of the collection then. Go back to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, um, which was referenced a little bit earlier. Um, and if, if you're not aware, in Acts chapter 2, this is really where the church has its very beginning. Uh, and in Acts chapter 2, really starting in verse 44, among all the things that they were now doing together, it says, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. You see that in Acts chapter 4, and again we read in Acts 11, that Christians were sharing specifically with one another. In Acts chapter 4, you have a man who is begging alms at the temple. I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 3, the next chapter. There was a man at the gate of the temple uh, who is begging alms, and if you look at verse 4, Peter along with John fixed his gaze on him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. And Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. So Peter and the apostles had just been collecting all of this money from Acts chapter 2, people selling their property and redistributing things as anyone had need. And yet he tells this beggar, who in this instance had not yet become a child of God, he says, I don't have silver or gold for you. And besides other points to be made from this, I think the simplicity is, the local collection was being focused and used entirely for the needs of the Christians who were there with wisdom. We'll see at the end of this. Romans 15, this is acknowledged, uh, this is acknowledged again, but go to 2 Corinthians um, chapter 8, verse 4. Um, when Paul reflects further on the collection that he had instructed them to be taking and its use, um, he follows up on that again in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And two verses re-emphasize again where this was going. What was this for? 
2 Corinthians 8 verse 4 says that uh, the Macedonians in this instance, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in in the support of the saints. And if you look at chapter 9 verse 12, chapter 9 verse 12, he says, For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Um, remember that verse, by the way. I'm going to make a point on this with the next thing we see as the main use of the collection on why I think it's so important to put as much possible emphasis on what we see consistently to be the main needs that were being met. Um, we notice that Paul is affirming, again, this is something supplying the needs of a very specific people. And think about this. Imagine the Corinthians go into Jerusalem, and there's this famine and there's great needs. And they're surrounded by people who are lacking. And here they are with money collected specifically for the needs of the saints. Do you think it might be difficult then to maintain the purpose of that collection when they see all the needs that are around them, not only among saints, but among those who are not saints? And I just want to put this question to you. Why do you think it may be so important, beyond just the call of the command itself. Why do you think it may be so important for them to exercise the self-control so as to not distribute that money out to those who had not yet come to know the Lord? Why do you think that self-control would be so important? What would be preserved in the integrity and the mission of those Christians in exercising that control? Um, So in 1 Timothy 5, um, turn there because I'm going to look at verse 16. Uh, the church is also told that if there are certain widows who, are, who have lived very specific lives and are living very specific lives, that they can actually be dedicated to receiving continuous support from the collection financially. But there are these, these restraints that are here, but also there's one in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. It says, If any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them, and the church must not be burdened, so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. First thing about this is we see that there is in Scripture, not only here but in other places, a separation between, again, what a person can do with their finances and what the church should do with their finances. One of the principles here is the church should not be burdened if family in this instance can step in and take care of that need, right? So there's a lot more freedom to what a person as an individual can do with their money, but there's a lot more restriction to what the church is called to do with their treasury. Something I like to ask people when we're talking about this, if Paul is so strict in 1 Timothy 5 with who should be receiving this ongoing support from the collection, if there's such restriction and specificity, then why would I then turn and think that the collection that is from the saints for the saints can just be used for any unrestricted purpose I think is of myself a good work? There's some kind of massive disconnect between that thought and the principle established here, right? Um, so the other is Second Thessalonians 3.10 that says, if a man is not willing to work, he's not to eat either. So obviously this has to be handled with wisdom. We want to support people who God has called us uh, to support as, as true saints. But again, despite the call for restriction and wisdom, this is consistently the, I think, most primary use of the collection you see in the New Testament church. Uh, the next one. 
is supporting preachers and evangelists. Um, turn to 1 Corinthians 9. We're not going to look at this whole section, um, but 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul is talking about how uh, a child of God is to consider their own liberties and rights. And one of the things that he uses as a model is his own willingness as an apostle to forego his right to have been financially supported by the church at Corinth while he was laboring among them, teaching and preaching. If you remember, Paul chose to be a tent maker while he was in Corinth, and then he also um, received funds from other congregations to do that work. But look specifically at verse 13 and 14. This is related to the principles established from the Old Testament that we looked at at the beginning of the lesson. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 13 and 14 specifically says, do you not know that those who perform the sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly at the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. And if you keep that in mind, go to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, verse 14 and 15. And th this connects to what I mentioned to hold on to with 2 Corinthians chapter 9, when he said that the contribution between the saints at Corinth and the ones at Jerusalem was overflowing with thanksgiving to God. And then he ends that chapter saying, thanks be to God for this indescribable gift, which it seems he's transitioned from thinking the gift would be something financial to more the spiritual blessings that are then reciprocated between the brethren in the act of sharing financially. We'll look at Philippians 4, uh, 15 through 18. <clears throat> but you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. So I'm going I'm to say something as opinion. In 2 Corinthians 9 and Philippians 4, the reason I think this was the emphasis as much as possible in the use of the collection is because there's something special accomplished when the sharing is from peer to peer, from one heart to another. And it can be easy to invest so much in works or uh, objects or you know, things that exceed even the capability of the members to financially support. But I think the reason why you see in the New Testament so much it was people being supported financially is because there's a sense of gratitude and humility that is increased in the receiving and the sharing of those things. You see that in 2 Corinthians 9. You also see this in Philippians 4, how humbled Paul was in acknowledging what the Philippians were doing for him, but also how pleasing this was to God for this reciprocation to be taking place, right? So that's what you see in the New Testament. You see the two primary uses of the collection, helping needy saints with wisdom, and supporting preachers and evangelists in the spread of the gospel message. With that, in 1 Timothy 5, 17-18, it also mentions elders who are laboring and teaching as those who can be financially supported um, as well. All right. So that leaves us under the question, well, if that's the case, then how come we have a building that we're paying for? Uh, what's with this place here that we're using our finances to actually support well, turn to 1 Corinthians 14.23. Um, 
Because one of the things that has been said in the past by those who have spoken on this topic in the past for clarity's sake, they would narrow down the three things that you see outlined in scriptural, Scripture that the funds of the church could be used for as benevolence, which is helping the needy saints, evangelism, which is what you see in the support of people like Paul preaching the gospel in different regions, and edification. And this would be in terms of the things that the local church is called to accomplish by command. Can the church use its local collection to accomplish things that they are obligated to fulfill? 1 Corinthians 14.23 just mentions, Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and the ungifted man or unbelievers answer, will they not say that you are mad? The first part of that verse is emphasized in chapter 11, verse 33, but also multiple times in this place. The assumption is the whole church has a place where they can gather together. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, we're exhorted to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. So does the church have authority to accomplish God's will in assembling to have a central place where we can meet together so that we can accomplish the command to edify one another in our assembly? I would say yes. I think this also is involved in songbooks that we may purchase, printed study material that we may purchase, Those things are all involved in the command to sing and to worship, to study together, to exhort, to read God's word together. All of these things would be involved in fulfilling necessary commands. But with that still is the caution. We see the primary use of the collection being consistently from people to people, peer to peer. And again, just opinion is that's where where the most emphasis should be in the use of the collection. Um, but then in Minnesota, a congregation where my parents attend, they have a radio program for evangelism. Uh, they preach the gospel over this radio program. It's like a question and answer thing. And I would say, again, just the principle of using the funds to support the proclamation of the gospel, that that would fall under the realm of this general authority uh, for these things. So that, that's really as simple as it is with what we see in the New Testament that we would have authority for. Why is this so important? That's really the final question that I really want to portray with all of this. Why, why is all of this so important? Think about, again, what we asked about Corinth and Jerusalem. You know, why it would be so important to specifically carry out that mission fully with the purpose it was originally intended for. God's wisdom creates, preserves, and builds a uniquely consistent kind of mission and accomplishment that is consistent with his glory, purpose, and nature. You know, oftentimes we will simply obey on the basis of knowing God, which is good and full of faith. But as we meditate on the things that we're doing, over time it can become more apparent what's being accomplished as we obey God the way that he has, he has instructed. Um, a lot of churches will try to draw people by doing works that a church has no authority to do. And what's drawing people to the gospel is actually not the gospel anymore. And I've heard it said sometimes um, that with churches that do use their collection for uh, purposes outside of the realm of the things that we've studied, for social purposes, recreational purposes, uh, to donate to institutions or to feed the homeless, all of those things, again, seem like good works and an individual has full authority to be involved in those things But I've heard it said that if a church does everything else right, but they just, you know, the collection isn't being used scripturally, that really, like, 
we're the same, save for this maybe one small thing. But I'd like to suggest to you that it's really not one small thing. And that really what it does is it shows that the mission and the focus of God's church has been lost. And the understanding of the importance of God's nature and preserving a very specific nature of what he's instructed and what he's purposed is lost. And by faith, what we seek to do is humble ourselves to appreciate that God knows how to carry out the mission that in the first century spread the gospel to the corners of the world under this pattern. We don't know better. I don't know better. We must build our faith and our obedience on the foundation of what's been expressed and safely keep ourselves there. And from there, any disagreement, any, any uh, difficult discussion, any patient um, thought process of how do we work through carrying out these things can be done with unity uh, between the brethren. So that's, that's really the nature of the lesson. And, you know, this obviously hasn't been a lesson to convict about sin specifically or obedience to the gospel. But if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian and you know that you need to obey the gospel, this still is a time that we've set aside to uh, invite you to come forward, to make that known so that we can assist you in that. Or if there's just prayers that are needed for encouragement or a confession of sin that you feel uh, would help yourself and the church to make known, now is the time to make any of those needs known while we stand and sing our invitation song.